0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. As I said a while ago, we're not doing these every week. We're going to kind of bring them out about every two weeks. But this week we've got a really great episode because The Last of Us is finished up. Turns out that some interesting ethical choices were made by the end of the season. And uh, we have a lot to talk about. So we're back with myself, Aaron McGowan, and Danielle written in the Star Wars. All that more after a commercial break. We have no control over. <laughs> Welcome back. This is Matthew, your host, They, Them, Pronouns. I'll let my two guests introduce themselves. Aaron?
1: Hi, yeah. I'm Aaron McGowan, also known as Lady Tano Creates on Instagram and TikTok. I'm usually on the Star Wars podcast with Matthew talking about the Bad Batch, but I am here for, I mean, a little bit. I have to dip out in about a half hour, and I'm sure you guys will keep talking, but I wanted to have a little input about The Last of Us. <laughs>
0: I think we might go past a half hour. There's one or two <laughs> things to bring up. But yeah, I'm really glad you can join us for at least that part. Uh, Danielle, what about yourself?
2: Uh, yeah, I'm Danielle at Written in the Star Wars on TikTok and DannyS394 on Twitter. And I'm so excited because The Last of Us is, you know, just my jam. I love it.
0: Yeah. I'm so glad I have both of you on to talk about it. There's so much we're going to get into. And I, I first want to say we're going to have massive spoilers for both the game and the show. And I just want to start though by, by congratulating uh, Danielle, you especially, but also all the people who've played the game and been commenting on it, because I admit there were some things about, like, something, Joel's going to do something big at the end of the season, but that, and, 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 and a couple... And a couple of people commenting, uh, you know, I don't always agree with Joel's choices. And you know, you said that a bunch, and I kept being like, "Well, what choices has he really made?" That, are... oh, oh. <laughs> um, but for the most part, the people who have played the whole game, really, I I follow a bunch of you, and I wasn't spoiled, and I was completely taken aback by the end. Uh, and I and, and I just want to start by saying that, and and, and use this lead to kind of say, for you as someone who knew the game, had played the game many many times. Uh, and had strong emotional connections to it, what was it like watching the show along with a bunch of people on on social media and your friends who hadn't played it before and, and who were experiencing it for the first time?
2: It's so hard because I, you know, when I'm, when I'm doing my analysis of the things, I try not to let the fact that I know things that are going to happen um, color my analysis of it. Because ultimately the show does show things that the game doesn't. And the game shows things that the show doesn't. And I want my analysis to always be something that is based purely off of the medium that I'm judging right then. And so it's hard not to, not to say anything and it's hard uh, to, to you know just not include that in things. But I'm so excited that there were so many people who weren't spoiled because I wanted to know what people's I- ideas were about it based purely on the show. And not off of the discourse that has happened from the games that have been influenced a lot by part two, which, of course, I'm not going to talk about. But um, just, you know, people's new ideas and people's new approaches to it and what they thought of it. So that was a lot of fun to experience.
0: And Erin, you have not played the game, right?
1: No, I have not. I got a seven minute rundown by one of my high school boyfriends. Um, (laughs) But that's about all I know. Uh huh, <laughs> And that was before the second game came out. So I know nothing yeah. about the second game.
0: Yeah, neither do I. I. I have downloaded it, and I'm making Puppy Dog Eyes at my partner to ask her to play it <laughs> while I watch. Because I, I trust you, Danielle, personally. I don't trust Twitter to not yeah. spoil it over the next two years. Yeah. Um, But th- there's so much to get into about this show. And I just want to – let's just start, though, at the end, because obviously it's a huge thing. And I literally looked at my, my partner when it finished – who had also been very good about not spoiling it because she's played the game, and went, we spent this whole time watching a villain origin story? (laughs) How did that happen? And the idea of whether Joel or not is a villain is a whole different topic that we'll get into, and I'm not saying he necessarily is, but, like, Aaron, what was it like for you to get to that moment at the end and be like, this is so different than any expectation I might have had? Or you might have seen it coming, I don't know.
1: No, I was really confused, because a few days before... I had Googled, like, oh, is there going to be a season two? Because I didn't know there was a second game. Mm. And then it was like, yeah, like, there's going to be a season two. And, like, here's explaining why Bella Ramsey is not going to be recast, even though it's a five-year jump. And Mm. I was like, thank God. I would have really not wanted to watch it if it wasn't Bella (laughs) Ramsey. Yeah. Uh And then it made some comment about her character in the second game that really led me to believe that Joel was going to die in that last um, Mm. episode. Like, I... I clearly read it wrong, you know, I stopped reading immediately, so they yeah. may have explained or expanded on that later, but I just stopped reading immediately and closed the tab. But yeah, I thought Joel was a goner, so when he, like, went on his rampage through the hospital, I was like, he's gonna get shot, and then when it was, like, he was holding Ellie, and Marlene was, like, had a gun on him, I was like, he's gonna get shot, and then Marlene <laughs> got shot, and I was like, this I did not see coming. <laughs> Hang on. Hang <laughs>
2: on.
0: Yeah, it really hit very hard. And one of the things I think that I love so much about it, and we'll get into Joel's character, because I think that's, I know, Danielle, it's so important for you. But just the way that this show overall went against every expectation that I think might have been set up for it so well, especially because, and I think this is very different than the game, like, I started out thinking that one of the episodes I was going to do at the end of the show was something with uh, uh, Professor Matthew Capel, who's been on many times, about the sort of like the genre of vampire versus zombie and why there's like a generational shift. I would say that I ended the show thinking this isn't really a zombie show. Mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. a sh- this is a humanity dealing with a horrible apocalypse, where the apocalypse happens to be zombies and will give you a couple of fun scenes of them fighting zombies, but like. This could be nuclear war that they're all coming out of. This could be, and they're all sick because of radiation. Like this could have been, and so yeah, I just I was just so in love with the idea that instead of just doing a zombie movie where everything was going to be about how to fight the zombies, a TV show, it really wound up being just about humans in a horrible situation and all the horrible choices they have to make.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's part of what you know. is So enrapturing about the story itself and the game it's not just a good game it's not just a good show it's a good story and if you have a good story you can tell it in any medium as long as you respect what is what that medium is best at you know and i think that that's just what makes it so easy for people to connect with too because you know yeah there's this, there's these infected who we don't have in our real life but that's not the main part of the story the main part of the story is relationships and humanity and love and cycles of vengeance and violence that we experience already and so if we experience that already in our lives how does that get amplified in a post apocalyptic world and that is what the story is about and i hope that that's what everyone who watched it, who maybe didn't play the game, gets from it that there's not supposed to be really any heroes or villains there's It's just humans trying to yeah. deal with this shit hand that they've been dealt, and you know that's the beauty and the
1: tragedy of it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. It's like I guess I wasn't that shocked with Joel's decision because. He is not a hero, you know, Mm -hmm. he's been made out as primarily a father and someone who's like willing to fight. You know, we learned that him and Tommy used to murder people at the start of this whole Mm -hmm. apocalypse just to get by, just to get supplies, just to, you know, whatever it was. And it's like, well, that's not inexcusable. And Tommy, you know, makes that point about. Joel says, oh, we did bad things. And Tommy said, those were people, and we murdered them. Yeah. Yeah. And I really liked that moment. And so, especially with the whole, like, Sarah and Ellie parallel, just, like, the way I understood it, I could be wrong. But basically, Marlene was like, yeah, we're going to kill Ellie, but it's probably going to save the world. And so, Joel being like, absolutely not. I will kill all of you to save her made complete sense to me because he's not a hero. He's not someone who set out to save the world. He's someone who set out to get a truck battery. Like that was his goal. (laughs) He never really cared about that. He even said to Ellie at the start of this episode, you know, we can just go back to Tommy's. We can live it out, you know, it'll be okay. Like this may or may not work. And she's the one who's kinda, yeah, we came this far. Like we have to see. Mm
0: Well, especially because, and, and I want to be clear, I'm starting out talking about how empathetic I am to his decision. That's a very different conversation between do we agree with his conversation, his decisions, and I think we'll 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 be talking about all of that. But just further on the empathy of it, I rewatched most of the show last night and this morning, and my God, is there so much foreshadowing? If you know what's yeah. happening, that's a whole other thing we'll talk about. Um, but one of the things that really came through for me now that I kind of knew where the story was going to go, was that he does not want to get attached to her. He fights it so hard. And it's it's Bill leaving that note for him that that kind of opens him up. It's the whole thing about like will it be him or Tommy who takes her to the university? which I don't understand why it wasn't both, but that's a whole other story entirely. (laughs) Um, But there's all these ways in which he fights so hard not to get attached to her. And then he finally does, and he lets his wall down, and it all comes in, and then now they're asking to take it away from him. Like, it... I don't love what he did, but I feel like every single thing that could have been set up to make him do that, to put him in a position where that's the only thing that would feel in character for him to do was done. It was so well, like, I i don't think he could have done anything else. And I would have been like, oh, yeah, that's in character for Joel.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think what's so coming from someone who has played the games a lot and as much as I love Joel, I Ellie is my first priority um Mm -hmm. when it comes to how I feel about these games and uh I feel that way because of a lot of reasons there's a lot of like really bad culture in the Last of Us fandom where Ellie gets sidelined a lot her feelings get sidelined her emotions her desires everything because people want Joel to be right they want Joel to always be right because they see themselves in Joel and that's fine but so anyway, I'm 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 digressing, but I am an Ellie. Ellie is my first priority always, and so it's been interesting to me to see that the main conversation and the main thing that people are bringing up is whether or not Joel was right to do what he did at the hospital, because I think that's actually a kind of easy answer or easy question to answer. Because yeah, we would all do that. I think we all have people that we would prioritize above anything else in this world. And that's just part of being human. And I think it's easy to look at that and say, "Yeah, I totally understand. I totally get why you would kill all these people so that you could save this little girl." But what about what, what I am has always have always been most interested in is what comes after that, which yeah. is his lie to Ellie and what that means for their relationship. What that means to Ellie Because I've I've said this before, but Joel's purpose is Ellie right now. She is his world. Joel is not Ellie's purpose. Ellie's purpose was her immunity and her ability to try and save people when she couldn't save them before. And she has to watch them die, knowing that she can't die from the same things they can. And what happens when you lie to this person about that, about how their purpose has ended. And they know it too. Ellie knows at the end that Joel is lying to her. She might not know exactly what he's lying about, but she does know. And so I'm always, I've just been really intrigued that people talk, uh, talk a lot about the choice of the hospital, which is fine. I think it's meant to make you uncomfortable. It's meant to make you question things but far less discourse i think has been happening around mm-hmm. what happens after which is in my opinion far more important of a discussion
0: 100% i think it is because it colors so much of what he does yeah. especially because and i there's a lot of discourse online about toxic love and what that can look like and i think it's very easy to set that up as a binary and i don't want to do that at all yeah. i think there there is selfishness in all love and, and you can say toxicity plays in sometimes it absolutely does, but it's not a binary. yeah But I do think that there's a distinction between loving someone because of who they are in your life and wanting to keep that versus loving someone in a way that wants them to find their purpose, even if it takes them away from you. You know, and like this is, you know, every parent does through this in terms of like, you know, wanting their child to, to find their, their best life or even if, if it means living, taking them away or I shouldn't say every parent, it certainly does not always work out that well. Uh, forget every parent, you know, but you know what I mean. Same thing with like best friends or romantic partners. You know, sometimes you can say that like, you know, the thing that my partner wants or my, my friend wants isn't what would be best for my relationship with them. But but I have to understand that's what they want. And for me, so much of what that is saying is Joel knows that if he tells her the truth, he will lose her. Mm. She won't die, but he knows her well enough to know that she will be so mad that she didn't get to choose. And, and again, the foreshadowing, as I went back and watched, there's the scene where he's waiting with the horses and they're deciding if it'll be him or Tommy who takes her. And he doesn't say, no, I'm going to take her. He says, I think Tommy would be best, but I quote, you deserve a choice. And that line hits so hard for me, knowing that later he's going to not only deny the choice, but lie to her because he knows that she did deserve the choice and she'll be so mad that she didn't get it.
2: Here's the thing with Joel. I love him. I love him so much. And I will defend him, but I will also criticize him. And the thing with him is that he will allow choices or he he he's most most likely to allow Ellie a choice when he knows that her choice is going to align with what he wants. And that's what we saw in episode six uh, when he gives her the choice. He knows Ellie's going to choose him over Tommy. He knows. And so he gives her this choice knowing that she's going to choose him. But a part of him is like, if she doesn't, then I'll accept that. But if he had any doubt that she wouldn't, would he have allowed her to make that choice? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I think we're seeing the opposite of that at the end of the, se- the end of the end season, because he doesn't know what she would do or rather he knows how she would react, but he's terrified of what she'll do. Mm. And because of that, I think that is what is keeping him from being like, here's what I did. Now, what do you want to do? After the things right. I've done, what do you want to do? Because he doesn't know what she would choose. She, and he probably thinks that it wouldn't be him.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and even just that he would see it in those terms, that it would be, because for her, I think, she, It would be choosing do I sacrifice myself, but he would see it as would she give up on me Yeah. in order to to sacrifice herself to do all these things. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. What I will say, speaking about, like, choices and them being taken away from Ellie, is we could have avoided this mess if Marlene had given her the choice and not put Mm -hmm. her under and said, we didn't tell her she won't feel a thing, but we're going to kill her. You couldn't have. Like, if you believe in then to turn around and say to Joel, you know she'd want to do the right thing. Well, Marlene, if you knew that, you would have told her. Yeah. So, so this is where <laughs> one of the things
2: that I wish they had included, and I think they tried to um, in the show with the very beginning and showing Marlene's relationship with Anna. And, um, and, and when, she, when she's having the conversation with Joel and they take Joel away... Marlene's crying. There's, there's a tear. And I think that she does care about Ellie. And in, in my Temple of, Geek pod, uh, not podcast, Temple of Geek article that I wrote about this finale, I t- focus this on purpose and how the only thing these people have in this post-apocalyptic world is their purpose, what they've decided their purpose is. That's all they have mm-hmm. to live for. And um, Joel's purpose, as I've said, is Ellie right now. He didn't have a purpose for a long time. And then Ellie came into his life and he has that purpose. Marlene's purpose is the fireflies and is the hope for a reinstated civilization, the hope for a cure for humanity. That is what she has focused her purpose on. And the difference between these two is that Joel's purpose is a person. Marlene's purpose is an idea and both of them will do whatever it takes and sacrifice whoever it takes to reach that purpose. And I do think that the Fireflies not allowing Ellie a choice was the very first mistake that was made here. And it's absolutely horrible. And um, But one thing that's in the game that I'm hoping they maybe go back and add in for season two is... Um, that Marlene struggles with this choice more than anything, because when she uh, sends Ellie with Joel, she doesn't know that Ellie's going to have to die in order for them to have a chance or a chance at the cure. And she doesn't know any of this. And it's not until they run the test that the doctor decides all of this and Marlene struggles with it and she feels absolutely horrible about it. There's these recordings in the game at the end of part one, um, where you hear her talking to Anna, she's talking to Anna into this recording and she is absolutely devastated at the choice that she's making. And she is failed. She says, I failed you, Anna. I failed you. You asked me to save your daughter and I'm failing mm-hmm. you, but I have to do this because there's no other way to save humanity. And so it's like, I can see Marlene's perspective in wanting to save humanity. There's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with Joel wanting to save Ellie. Where they both make the mistake is um, them not allowing Ellie the choice. So we're stuck in this cycle of the Fireflies are the ones to instigate not allowing Ellie the choice. Joel has a horrific but understandable reaction to that. And then he turns around and does the exact same thing to Ellie. He has the opportunity to set it right and to say... I've, this is what was going to happen. This is why I couldn't let them do it. Um, you deserve a choice. And if he was thinking you deserve a choice, then why didn't he ask her afterwards? Because of all the horrible things he did. So it's this vicious cycle you have here that one thing affects another, affects another, affects another. And who is more responsible at this point? Who is more to blame and I don't think there are easy answers to this and everyone's going to have a different answer to it and that's the beauty of it to me the beauty of the story is that it's not easy to answer these questions
0: yeah it's it, it is so well done and it says so much about how much how much the perspective that we have from the storyteller changes these things like I made the joke about this being a villain origin story and, and it To be clear, I didn't mean that I think it's because Joel is objectively a villain. I think it's because if you are telling this story from someone else's perspective, then, you know, if the story is that we could have had a cure to fix humanity, but this guy Joel stole what we need for the cure, and so your mission is to go get him, like, and Mm -hmm. the hero does that, but eventually has to realize that actually the guy had a very good reason for doing what he did, or, or, like... There's so many ways that in modern, in a lot more modern uh, stuff, especially in DC and Marvel, we're getting more and more of these deeply relatable, deeply understandable villains. Sometimes where it's you totally agree with the villain's end goal, you just disagree with his means. Yeah. Or uh, often his could be any, but often it's his. Um, and that I think could apply to Joel. Or it's just that the that this person's the villain because we don't know their context, we don't know their story, and it, like. It was just so wonderfully set up, and I think such a great commentary on this thing of, because yeah, with the one exception of the pastor, I feel like every single character in this show, I can understand that from their point of view they see themselves as the hero, you know. And yeah. some of them I think are easier to relate to, some are harder. But like even uh, Kathleen, mm-hmm. I think is her name, who, the leader of the Fireflies in Kansas City. Like, yeah. I get where she's coming from. Um, even not. The pastor himself, because I think clearly there's like a lot of bad implications of where he's going with Ellie, yeah. but like everyone else in his church, mm-hmm. they sent people out to try and get food. One of their people was killed. They have to do what they have to do, you know? Um, so yeah, I just, it's, it is just so powerful to me how, how they're really playing this idea of who's a hero and who is a villain and showing that from one person's point of view... That who is a hero and who is a villain is entirely based on who's the person t- telling their story.
2: Yeah. Everyone's a villain in someone else's story. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this just takes that to the extreme.
0: <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. Very much so. So let's talk specifically about Joel first and his choices. And before you get to his choices, I, one of the things that I rewatching it also made so clear to me is that I was thinking about the mistakes Marlene made and one of, I thought definitely she makes a mistake in not allowing Joel, not allowing Ellie to make a choice. Mm -hmm. But also I felt like, Marlene, how could you be so stupid as to think you could tell Joel all this and he wouldn't react exactly as he does. Mm. But then when I went back and rewatched episode one where he's like, okay, this is cargo. This is not a person. I'll just transport her. I realize that detail is brilliant because it, again, shows just how much he's changed. And Marlene hasn't seen any of that. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think um, she didn't expect him to get as attached as he did because the only Joel she's ever known is the Joel post Sarah. And um, when it comes to that, I I think he was probably the one person she thought would do this and be done with it by the end. And she didn't account for the fact that because he was a father, this was going to be very difficult for him. And that was definitely another mistake for her. Um, but yeah, it's it's just so complicated because like I talk about this and I don't, like my favorite thing about this is that it exists in a gray area and it exists in something that you know, a world that we don't understand because it doesn't follow the same rules that we have. And, um, that's my favorite part about it. And I love exploring that, but it's just so interesting to see every, everyone want, want to pick a side. And I feel like the last of us asks you like to question that, why do you have to pick a side? Why do you have to say that this person is acting better than this person and and, and ask you to question that. Like, why, why, why do you do that? Why do we inherently do that as humans? And I just love that kind of philosophical, uh, you know, force that they have on there. It's just like, this is going to make you uncomfortable and we want it to be. We want you to not be in your comfort zone when you talk about this show.
0: Yeah, I think that's such a good way of putting it. I think it's why... It is both perfect and terrible for this show, <laughs> yeah. specifically, because this is all about exploring the ethical choices that heroes and villains and all of them make. And I think there is so much to explore, but the whole point of it, like, that if we were to come down and be like, okay, in the objective analysis, this character is right, this character is wrong, this is the ethical character, this is the unethical character, we've completely missed the point of, mm-hmm. of the of the whole show and the game, and I'm guessing the game as well.
2: Yeah, it's... And it's it's just it's just interesting. I like seeing the way people engage with it differently. Um, I try not to get too because I can get very analytical about it, <laughs> and wow. I I know that that's not everyone's thing. And uh, i was just like that's just that's just how I am with this show. Like I was talking to my boyfriend about it, and I was said normally you have a scene like. Joel going through the hospital or Joel interrogating and torturing those men in any other thing, I'd be like, yeah, get him, get him. But I've experienced this story so much and I've viewed it from so many different angles that I'm like, I just can't, I can't do that anymore. I have to have a deeper look into it. I have to be thinking about it differently. And so it's nice to see other people view it differently and remind me that that's how I was when I first played the game. That, that's, that's what my reaction was. And it's changed every single time I've played it. Every single time, I'll watch it, probably. I find new perspective, and I find something else to it. And I think that's what makes it such a good story, that you can do that. You can play it so many times, watch it so many times, and get something new from it every single time.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm thinking... Okay, I'm horrible with video games, I'm gonna be honest. I actually, over the weekend, got lunch with the same boyfriend, well, ex-boyfriend, who first, like, introduced me to this game. And he also, we were playing Arkham Asylum together before we broke up. And it's been four years. Haven't seen him since. And we're sitting there chatting, and he's like, I can promise you, like, I will bet money that you never finished Arkham Asylum. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you're you're 100% right. Like, if I don't have another person there with me, I'm not going to do it. Because if I'm just sitting there by myself... I'm not very good at video games, so I'm going to get really frustrated when I can't solve all the little puzzles. Yeah. And so it's just like, I really want to get into this game. And I, I think I'm going to have to give video games another try just to see. Because as you've said, Danielle, there's so many little details that are different in the game versus the show that don't necessarily make one better than the other, but mm-hmm. it just changes it.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. So I'd love to like actually see that and understand it the way you do you don't get that other perspective yeah
0: and, and I definitely share that attitude with you about about the, about playing games and really about watching things in general and I think this is I'm so glad you've also found your way to the world of podcasting because the joke mm-hmm. often is that a podcaster is the person who says what's the point in having a thought if I can't share it with someone <laughs> um, <you know? laughs> um, but I, I yeah, the discussions about it are so good, because I think, as you said, Danielle, it, it raises all these questions for ourselves about, you know, what is love? What, you know, what what is the degree that you would go to for love? Because one thing that really struck me and the moment where I started to feel incredibly uncomfortable and started to really be like, I think I get now what is off about Joel's relationship with Ellie is the scene where he's talking about how much Ellie and Sarah would like each other. Yeah. Because one of the things I thought was important was how much in his head she is not Sarah she is not going to be like Sarah they are so different and maybe they would have liked each other I don't know if they would have Um, and maybe they would have you never know they certainly have Joel in common but the degree to which he seemed to be forcing that and she was clearly uncomfortable and he was kind of going on with it What did you all think of that scene? Because to me, it really read as this is him getting to the point where he's no longer fully seeing Ellie as her. He's slotting her into the hole that's been left in his life since Sarah was killed. And that's an overgeneralization, to be sure. But I'm kind of curious what you all saw in that.
1: Yeah, I was watching it and I was like, okay, this is kind of interesting, like weird way to go right after this. But like. I mean, yeah, I guess it makes sense. He's feeling better. He's feeling like he's secured the safety of his new daughter figure. He's probably going to be thinking about his original daughter, his, you know, blood daughter. So I guess, like, it makes sense for him to bring it up. But, yeah, Ellie was kind of clearly like, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. it doesn't really... He was like, not to say you're not girly. And she's like, I'm not. (laughs) You, You know that. You can just say that. Like, we're so different. And then... When it just ended like that, I was just like, oh. Like it was like a little like punch in the stomach. Like I thought we were going to get a little more resolution, a little more this. But it really just ended on him lying to her face. Yeah. And it puts this horrible feeling Mm -hmm. deep in your stomach of how that's going to come back in season two. Because Ellie is strong willed. She's independent. And she doesn't like people making choices for her. Yeah, And I think she's, I mean, as David the Cannibal pointed out she has a little bit of a violent heart. She kind of wants vengeance. Like, I don't believe that makes her a bad person or anything negative like that, but she is the type to get revenge and want revenge. Mm -hmm. And so this, she could pull a full 180 on Joel. I don't want to see that, but I think that might be how the second season goes because something so important being, like, kept from her and being lied to about it by the person she trusts the most. Like... Yeah. I don't want to see the second season be like Joel versus Ellie or like Ellie trying to hunt Joel or anything like <laughs> that, but it wouldn't shock me either. Mm. Yeah. Yeah,
2: I that whole scene, I'm glad you brought it up, Matthew, because it is so interesting. In the show they dig a bit more. They have a they make Joel talk about Sarah a bit more in the show than in the game. He still does in that same way, but they add to it. And, um, I think that was a brilliant, brilliant choice because it really does show that Ellie is not on the same level as him with this. And I was thinking last night and I tweeted about this, about how Joel has the experience of a father. It is very natural for him to have a child that he's supposed to protect and put her in the slot of daughter. And I don't think that means he views her the same as Sarah but I think he does view her as a daughter and that's natural to him and it makes sense. And therefore, because she's his daughter, he has a right to certain things about her. He has a right to know what's best for her. He has a right to make choices in her best interest. He truly believes that I think. And Ellie, meanwhile has never been someone's child except for when she was a few minutes old, and she doesn't remember that. She has no recollection of that. And she has had to spend her entire life up to this point making choices for herself, um, putting herself first, not putting herself first, but, you know, deciding what is best for her. And all of a sudden, along comes this guy who she wants and likes that he protects her. But protecting, allowing someone to protect you isn't the same as agreeing that they can have they can have a say in what your best interests are. And yeah. I think this is where a lot of people sometimes don't see what's happening here is that they want Joel and Ellie to be father daughter so badly and they can be but not to, not in the same type of way that a father daughter who have had this long history together would be. Yeah. Because Sarah would accept that Joel is this way. She knows because she lived that but ellie hasn't that's not her experience and so when people say that even if she was given the choice because of her age or because of the traumatic experiences she's been through that that choice wouldn't be a good one or it wouldn't be consensual because she's it's being uh, affected by all of these things i don't like that because yeah. it discounts her experiences. It discounts the fact that she has been through so much even before Joel entered her life. So who is Joel to be the best person to decide for her?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I love the way you put that. And I, I've been thinking about this ever since you you tweeted that because it's such a good point, because let's take, uh, you know, imagine all the things are normal in any other context if a father said my child wanted to die to further a cause they believed in at age 14 and i forbid them from doing so i think in like i am very much on the side of let kids decide mm-hmm. even there though i'm probably coming down on the side of the parent yeah. being like yeah you're not going to allow yourself a kid to, to, to end their life in that way for the, for a reason they believe in mm-hmm. But as you said, all the situate, the fact that it is literally all of humanity against this one life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, somebody, I'm not saying that that's an easy equation, but just, you know, that that's a part of it. That Ellie's been through all of this, that Ellie has this guilt about, uh, you know, the people who die. She has survivor's guilt, mm-hmm. quite literally. Um, yeah, it's that I think this is, you get why his perspective is, of course, I'm not going to let my child end their life. But he can't see... All of that because yeah I think this is the point where he's no longer seeing her for her he it, he want he wants her to be Ellie yeah I, mean, I think in some ways that's the the hardest part is that I think one of the things that bonds them is they both have the survivor's guilt yeah you know that's part of why he I think want I agree with you before that he wants he knows she'll choose him over Tommy but I think part of why he needs that is because he feels that if he chooses it and he fails then it's all his fault. And then mm-hmm. if she chooses it, it somewhat absolves him of that.
1: Yeah, that's um, a good point.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Kind of going uh, back to what you were saying, Danielle, about like the whole father-daughter dynamic, I think it's really true and interesting that it's like, yeah, Joel had a daughter and lost it. Therefore, he has a hole in his life. He's, he's not looking to fill, but he's kind of been forced to fill until he did accept it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, But Ellie didn't have a father. She doesn't need a slot to fill or a hole to fill because she's never had that type of energy or relationship in her life. And so I think it's really true what you're saying about, like, it's starting to feel forced, and it's starting to feel more for Joel than it is for Ellie because she just needs him as, like, a strong figure, a friend, someone she can trust, someone who can protect her. But she doesn't need him necessarily to be parenting her or to be telling her how to make decisions and choices because she's been doing that her whole life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think for her, her feeling over him possibly leaving her when he wants to send her with Tommy and her feeling that Riley has left her is, Mm. I think, very, very similar. And that's helpful because it shows that for her, he's not in this fundamental... You know, it's not that Riley is best friend crush and... Crush is almost way too young. Uh, bad a word. It, it's not. You, you know what I mean. Yeah. The young, young yeah. love, best friend, etc. And he's parent. It's that these are two people who are both very important to me, and both of them, for a time at least, I thought were going to abandon me.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think that it's just it's just so interesting the way Ellie views the people in her life and the way she views being alone. And I saw someone on TikTok, make a really good point about how when she says, okay, there's so many levels to that. Okay. Um, I, I view it as it being like her being like acceptance, but not in a good way. It's accepting that he's lying to her about something and that he probably did something horrible and that their relationship isn't going to be the same after this. And she's going to go with him anyway, because one, she does love him. She does. I don't think that that is, like, in question. She does love him. Mm -hmm. But two, she doesn't want to be alone. Her biggest fear is being alone. And if she pushes Joel to tell her the truth anymore after this, and he does, what is she going to do? She's going to go off on her own and her worst fear be realized? Is she going to stop talking to him? And, you know, it's just, it's, like, all of that, like, accepting that, he isn't the person she thought he was
0: anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One more thing in the foreshadowing that again I missed the first time but going back to that episode after they've been to the university and he's been stabbed and he's telling her go take care of yourself and she almost does but then stopped in part because she remembers Riley and she decides like and she knows she is possibly the key to saving this and that she's putting herself in danger and in the I hadn't watched any of the after after credits type stuff because I don't want to get spoiled, but I watched it this time. And Neil, the writer, said about that moment, "The person she loves most in this world is Joel, and she'll do anything she can to save him." Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of why it's not for her an easy decision. Of he's lying to me, therefore I leave him. Yeah. I think. I think she is is going to be angry that he's lying. When she finds out she's going to be angry that he took the choice away from her, but I think she also can understand that idea of, I will do anything to save you, because I think that's where she was, too. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, it's like similar situations, just the Joel's choice, you know, is obviously more detrimental to society. It's a bigger choice. Like for Ellie, it was, do I stay here and possibly die with him or do I run back to Tommy? And she chose, you know, to save him because that's what was important to her. And Joel, just the same thing, just wanted to save her because that's what's important to him. But he had to kill, like, 20 people to do it. Yeah. And take this possible cure away from the world. So, yeah, it's like, I can see how it's similar so that he can draw the connection to almost make an excuse or make himself feel better. But it's also different enough that, of course, Ellie's going to be furious. Yeah. Right. With that, I do have to get going. Um, okay. I really, really wish I could stay here and <laughs> talk with you guys, but I will well, wait patiently till the episode comes out, and I will listen to the rest of it.
0: Uh, well, just quickly air th- for those who are hearing you, and they don't hear you on Star Wars, they want to know more about you. Give us just a twenty seconds to where to find you.
1: Okay. Um, I do cosplay on the side. That is my contribution to the world. I am under the tag Lady Tano Creates on Instagram and TikTok. TikTok, I do a lot of like the building of and some like thoughts about bad batch and just random things like that instagram also some building of but i also post more like events and things like that that i've done um but yeah also my tiktok has like over a hundred followers more than my instagram so if you guys want to show me some love on instagram i would (laughs) appreciate it i actually have two of my favorite german cosplayers following me on there they both have like thirty thousand followers and i was like that's amazing. I am so blessed to be here. That's great. So if they like me, hopefully you guys would like me on Instagram too. <laughs> With that, I will go. <laughs>
0: definitely worth checking out. Aaron, thank you so much Bye, for being Aaron. part of this.
1: <laughs> of course. Bye,
0: Danielle. So in the conversation we were just having, I think is a great segue. Because you talked about how in some ways, like defending Joel's choice to save her is kind of easy. And I want to look from the other side mm-hmm. because... I think I'm a little bit of a Marlene apologist.
2: Oh, I love Marlene. That,
0: <laughs> right? Yeah. And like, there, there's all of this literature, and I think very good reason that talks about the idea that like choosing to sacrifice one person for the greater good of all is a very dangerous road to go down. Mm-hmm. And uh, another person who I follow on Twitter, I, I forget who it is in the moment, but I'll try and retweet their tweet in connection to this pointed out that in The Song of Ice and Fire, both the TV shows and the, the books, there's this great scene where Stannis, they're talking about like how they think they can sacrifice this boy to save the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, what is the life of one bastard boy against an entire kingdom? And Davos replies, everything. Yeah, And that's a situation in part because I think we have good reason to know that it won't work. But I, but I think like that general attitude of you always save the individual holds so much merit but i feel like and again pushing against expectations if i don't have the emotional connection to ellie that i do having watched the whole show Mm -hmm. i hate the idea that you have to kill this child without them knowing it And I could understand if those people were like, that was a horrible choice we had to make. It wasn't the right choice. It it wasn't a good choice. It wasn't the ethical choice, but it might have been the the necessary choice. Mm -hmm. I hope to God I can never be in that position so that I can stand in my nice ivory tower and judge them. (laughs) But I feel like I can really understand why they made that decision. And not entirely, but somewhat defend it.
2: Yeah. um, Like I said, this is why... Viewing all of this from the perspective of everyone having a purpose is so important in my opinion, Mm -hmm. because no one's purpose except for David, the cannibals (laughs) is um, inherently wrong, you know, or I guess maybe even David's purpose isn't inherently wrong. He makes it wrong by the choices that he goes about trying to fulfill it. Um, But like I said, there's nothing wrong with wanting to save the world. There's nothing wrong with wanting to uh, end horror for everybody and if that's your purpose if that's what gets you through then i can completely understand that and that is it for marlene and i hate when people say that she's this villain and she's this you know evil person who took away ellie's choice because if you view it from her perspective ellie is the last thing that she has of her best friend her and anna knew each other their entire lives and I think people lessen just how seriously Marlene took Anna asking her to save Ellie because people will say, oh, she just dropped her off with Fedra. Fedra was the safest place for Ellie to be because Marlene yeah. can't leave the fireflies. She can't leave her purpose for Ellie. And maybe someone else would, but that's not who Marlene is. And I don't think that makes her a horrible person. Um But she And she also can't take care of Ellie while she's in the Fireflies, because Ellie would have to become a part of the Fireflies. And we know that Riley asked Marlene if Ellie could join her, and Marlene said no. And I think in the game, it's made a little bit more clear um, that it's because Marlene doesn't want to risk Ellie's life. She would have to put Ellie in life-or-death situations, Mm -hmm. and she doesn't want to do that. And... A mistake I think I think they made in the, the show um, was not putting in the way it is in the game that Marlene and Ellie know each other before what happens with Riley. Uh, yeah. They've met each other. Ellie knows that Marlene knew her mother. Uh, she knows that she got the letter and the knife from Marlene and all these things. So they have a relationship before that. And I think that would have been beneficial to put in the show um yeah because it adds another layer there that marlene has been looking over ellie her entire life and i also wonder is the reason marlene stayed in the boston qz so she could keep an eye on ellie because we see that the fireflies move constantly that they were going to send riley off to a different qz and why is why has marlene stayed for 14 years in this boston qz when it's not really done anything to help them but right. what's the denominator there? Ellie's there, and
0: I, I yeah. think that's also true. Sorry, let me cut you off.
2: Oh no, it's okay. I just uh, was saying, and then the minute that Ellie's no longer there, is Marlene traveling with her, wanting to you know get her somewhere else, and so I think that yeah. people really lessen Marlene's stake in Ellie's life.
0: I think it's also true, and. Going back again, in the first episode, they do make a bunch of references to it. You know, there's a line where Ellie says, you know, oh, you're going to leave me with a bunch of terrorists talking about the Fireflies. Mm-hmm. And Marlene says, was Riley a terrorist? Yeah. And of course, we don't know what that means. If you haven't played the game and I'll be watching, I'm like, oh, I see that. Mm-hmm. And there were a couple other of those moments. And I think also, I remember being surprised that Marlene was still alive. And I went back to something again I noticed in the rewatch is... At one point, like Ellie and, I'm sorry, Joel and Tess are debating if they're going to take Ellie again. Mm-hmm. And in a line that I think establishes her character so well, Marlene says, can you hurry up? I'm bleeding out over here because yeah. she's been shot. Yeah, And I think not only are we supposed to be a bit surprised that Marlene lived, I think part of the implication there is that Marlene is convinced she's going to die of this wound. Mm. Uh, and yeah. that that's part of it because that's the only reason she would let go of Ellie. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and I think that it also says a lot that Marlene didn't shoot her as soon as yeah. she found her and saw that she was bit. Um, some people might think, oh, she's making the connections that she knows that Anna was bit before Ellie was born, before she cut the umbilical cord. She knows that, oh, maybe maybe this is a cure. Maybe this is something we haven't seen yeah. before. But I think it was probably, I killed my best friend. I can't kill her daughter too. And the irony of that is, is that then she's forced to make the choice to do it. And you can't help but wonder of like, if Marlene had refused the fireflies and the doctor, Mm -hmm. what would have happened? Would they have killed her? And then no one would have told Joel. And no one would have done any of these things. And so I think a lot of hate is put on Marlene unfairly. Mm -hmm. Um, She's just a human trying to, again, fight for her purpose and do the best she can.
0: So what you said also led me to a whole other connection, which is, as I said, at first I thought Marlene should wait until the procedure is over Mm -hmm. and then just tell Joel, I'm so sorry she died during the procedure. It was tragic. Mm. And I think, though, that you just pointed out one other very good reason why she does it, I think she really needs him to also acknowledge that she, I think she needs him to acknowledge he made the, she made the mm. right choice, or at least she needs someone else to know. Yeah. Because I think you're right. I think she is wrestling with this. I think some part of her, like, if it was random kid, I think she's a decent person that she wouldn't be like, yes, yeah, slaughter an eight-year-old or a 14-year-old, yeah. whatever. But I think it would be so much easier for her if it wasn't the kid who was... Her connection to her best friend and the kids she'd promised to protect.
2: Yeah. Um, I, yeah. Because she didn't have to tell Joel. You're right. And I think that gets left out a lot because I don't talk about that a lot either in my discourse. Um, but yeah, she didn't have to tell him then and there, but she does. And so we have to think clearly there's when I analyze the media, I'm like, OK, if this is happening and I'm wondering about it, then I'm going to assume that the creators did it with a purpose and they want it to mean something so what does that mean here and yeah that is who's the other only other person in the world who would understand what she's feeling she sees that that's joel um she knows the risk in telling him but she tells him anyway and just like she says when he's like you don't understand she says no i do actually i was there when she was born I killed her mother and I probably shouldn't say that, but I promised her that I would save her daughter. And I'm the only person right now who actually does understand what this means. And that's why I always say, and when I discuss Marlene is that she didn't care about Ellie less than Joel. She cared about her differently, but that doesn't mean that she cared about her less.
0: Yeah. I think that's such a good way to put it. And, you know, in essence, what the show is creating is a trolley problem. And I think, like all trolley problems, it is always possible to nitpick it. You know, Mm -hmm. because I think we could say, why didn't she just, like, the minute she saw Joel was upset, say, oh, well, let's just, let's pause, wake her up, see if she agrees. Or why didn't Joel just hold a gun at her and say, you have to wake her up right now, you know, instead? And I think that... As a philosopher... Yeah, that sounds very pretentious. As someone who studied philosophy and ethics and Mm. likes to use those veins to look at these shows, I think we can always do that. We can always Mm -hmm. find a loophole that would prevent the difficult ethical choice. And I love that the show doesn't do that. I love... Because it would have been possible for him to rescue her. Like, to some extent, it is always possible... To say, we're not going to do this without her choosing, but we're going to let her choose. Mm-hmm. And then if she chooses it, I'll be okay with it. But it is two things that close that forever. One, he kills the doctor. Mm-hmm. And maybe other doctors know this, but we don't know. And two, he doesn't give her a choice. Yeah. you know, And like a lot of other shows would do that as a way to sidestep the difficult issue. And I just love it so much that it just takes us to that issue. And... I, don't know, I feel like anyone who could just clearly say Joel was right or Marlene was right or any, if you can come away with this with any kind of easy ethical perspective, I think you haven't really understood the show.
2: Yes, exactly. And I know <laughs> I get, I get so into this and this is why I really, I made a TikTok a long time ago when they first announced the show and I was like, this is going to be my joker y'all don't understand because this is how I am with the game. Mm-hmm. And it truly has become that because I hate when people polarize these decisions because that's fundamentally against what the show asks you to do. And I know this sounds ridiculous saying this, but every time I see that, I'm just like, it feels disrespectful to the show because disrespectful to the story yeah. because it's not, it doesn't want you to just view Joel as a hero. It wants you to view Joel as a hero and then have that ripped from you because that's what happens to Ellie. And yeah. um, it wants you to grapple with what you're willing to, to allow these characters to do and still love them. How you balance your love for them with the ugly parts of their humanity. And that's real life. And I think people are resistant to that because they go into a fictional story and they want to see something that's not real life. Something that's easily, that's an easy binary Characters are easily grouped into these boxes where they do what we expect them to do, and um, they don't disappoint us. The ones who aren't supposed to disappoint us don't disappoint us. The ones that are do, and at least we know what to expect. But that's not what The Last of Us is. It is a reflection of humanity told in a different world, a post-apocalyptic world. And I love that so much about it, and I think it's just people don't want to be uncomfortable when they discuss this. But yeah. the best way to engage with a story is to make yourself uncomfortable. Hear someone talking about it from a perspective that you didn't originally agree with. And when you feel that discomfort, push past it and hear what that person is saying, because it makes it yeah. so much more of a fruitful discourse than just saying, Joel is absolutely right. I'm not going to listen to anyone who says anything bad about him, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it is not to go into another show that you and I have discussed at length, but... I think there's a real connection there to Andor Mm. and the problems people often have with Andor. Because Andor is another show that says, okay, yeah, Star Wars started pretty clearly with Rebels good, Empire bad. Mm. But what if, like, a decent person with a terrible family situation gets wrapped up in the Empire Mm. and makes terrible choices? And what if people make horrible choices? Like, to me... um, to me, like, Luthan and Marlene would get along real well, mm. you know, except Luthan would actually be like, Marlene, of course you kill the kid. What's the
2: question? <laughs> yeah, Why are you um, hesitating?
0: <laughs> and like, you know, and, and I think the, the, the problem that we've often had, that you and I have both had with the Andor, was the time where it took what we thought was a much more morally complex character and made them a lot more like, no, this character is just good, yeah. even though some of the choices they made. And I think... To me, it's not coincidental that we're getting both of these stories at about the same time mm-hmm. and, and Mandalorian as well, which is, you know, not, I think not to the extent that Andor is, but is in a similar way as kind of playing with some of these questions. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, I think you're right. I think to me, I think binary good and bad thinking is helpful escapism sometimes, mm-hmm. but. Goes in some really bad ways, yeah. some directions, and I think it. We need more stories that say, "Okay, we grew up on that, but let's ask some questions. Let's actually ask, you know, were we right to decide entirely with one person?" And and that's why I said I think this is Joel's village, villain origin story in such a perfect way.
2: Yeah, it's it's um, it is in that he can't go back from it. He has made a choice yeah. that might very well have very serious ramifications and consequences. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I don't think even with that, I don't think he'd regret it and that's okay. Like, and that's the thing is that you can say, I agree with Joel and that's fine. You don't have to give a reason why you don't have to defend him, bend it over backwards to defend him. You can just say, I would do the same thing if I was in his shoes. And that's a very complicated thing. And both a very, well, both very easy and very complex. And um, one of my least favorite things that people do is bring up whether or not the vaccine is actually possible, because I'm like, that's not the point of the story. Yeah. The point is that Joel, regardless of whether it's possible or not, he doesn't care. All he cares yeah. about is Ellie and... You could talk about that in a different context for the show or for the story, but not when it comes to right. Joel's decision. That doesn't get him a check mark versus the Fireflies because he doesn't care.
0: I think it's essential for Joel's decision and it's also essential for Marlene's decision because she, whether this is true or not, mm-hmm. she 100% believes yeah. that it will work. Yeah. Because I think if she thought this is a chance, then I feel very differently about her decision. Yeah. But if this to her is a binary, rescue humanity versus this one girl's life. I mean, all the ethical, like, you know, good quotes say that you save the one person's life. Yeah. And I think that's the point, is to say that that is true in the abstract. Is it true here? Mm -hmm. I'm not, and again, I'm not saying it clearly is. I'm not saying I agree with Marlene, but I'm saying I think that both her and Joel are in very understandable positions. And to me, this is really a lesson about storytelling, because the fact is that we have become, we have never had Marlene as a point of view character, mm-hmm. without except, except for the one scene where Ellie is born. Yeah. And so we are naturally drawn to sympathize much more with him. Yeah. I think you could make a totally different story. I don't want someone to do it right now because it'd be <laughs> obvious, but I think you could make a totally different story about it's a post-apocalyptic world. You're a bounty hunter as the main character in the video game or mm-hmm. the TV show, and you're asked to go out and... Find this person who stole the thing that's needed to save humanity. Yeah. And you've dealt with Marlene this whole time. And at the very end, you realize it's actually a living person. Yeah. What do you do? It's yeah. the same story, mm-hmm. just from a different perspective. Yeah.
2: It absolutely is. And yeah, I'm, yeah, that's just what I love so much about this story. And I'm really looking forward to season two and beyond because they've already said that part two will cover more than one season. And mm-hmm. I'm intrigued to know how they're going to approach this part of it and what they'll do, what they'll change, what they'll keep the same. Again, I have so much trust in them because they handled this, they handled part one exquisitely. And I have no doubt that season two will be equally as good, if not better. And And one thing I'm not looking forward to is the discourse, because if you thought this discourse was tiring season two yeah. and beyond is going to be even worse
0: <laughs> very much agreed very much agreed and like i said i'm gonna just play the game I, there's no way i'm gonna go the whole time spoiled so even the the thing that aaron mentioned about five years in the future i didn't know that oh so no we're, we're gonna play the game we're gonna play the game um there's just two last things i want to bring up and then we'll go to uh uh any last things you want to bring up and then bonus content um one of which is, this is a small part, but I, I thought it was so well foreshadowed again that I want to go back to it. The comment about, you know, Joel saying, you know, you're a little bit girly, which is clearly not true. <laughs> and there were two moments that foreshadowed of that I thought so well. One of which Joel was literally there for. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one he's there for is the one where she finds the diary of the girl who used to live in the house they're yeah. staying in. And she's talking about, like... All these, you know, girly things that the girl was writing her, you know, about boys and what shirt would match with what skirt and what movies are out. And like, to be clear, I don't think the show is saying those are girly in a bad way. And I'm I'm certainly not. Mm -hmm. But Ellie absolutely does. She's like, this is bizarre. Why would someone be interested in this? Yeah. And then also the scene when Riley and Ellie are in the mall... And they're both so baffled that someone would want to wear that Victoria's Secret <laughs> lingerie. And I, I think the easy thing would be to be like, yeah, of course, they're kids. no one want, But no, like young teenagers, some go in that direction and do really want to wear mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Um, and to me, those two moments are both so clearly saying this is not who Ellie, Ellie is. Uh, tomboy is such an overused term, but it's like she's not the person who... Joel is making her out to be in order to form a connection in his mind between her and Sarah.
2: Yeah, which I think is interesting because I think that—because I, I, I'm of two minds about this. I don't mm-hmm. think Joel views Ellie as Sarah. I think that he—maybe a part of him needs to after the hospital to justify what he's done. Um, and maybe that's what we're seeing but I do think he he would not have allowed himself to connect to Ellie if she was like Sarah. I think he allows himself to connect with her because she's a lot like him. Yeah, They are two sides of the same coin. And that's where a lot of the conflict comes up at what we see at the end. And, you know... Just like Joel is willing to die for his purpose, Ellie, just like he's willing to kill for his purpose, so is Ellie. It's just that her purpose is different. And I think he he doesn't want to see that at the end. I think he sees it before the hospital. Yeah. I think he doesn't want to see it after because that would force him to grapple with how he would react if someone did that to him. Right. And it wouldn't be well, good. <laughs>
0: And here's where I think that tweet you made is so perfect because, with Sarah, we very clearly saw him do things where Sarah wanted to like put herself and them in danger in order to like save someone or do something else, and he clearly was able to be like, "No, I am father. I get to say that you don't do that." Mm-hmm. And in those cases, like I think we agree with him for the most part, yeah. although some of like the the running people down in the truck, you're like, <laughs> but but you get it. Yeah. and I think that. To me, it was two things. One is that it's like he now wants her to be a little bit less like him and a little more like Sarah because that makes him being the father figure who chose for her more okay. Mm. The other thing, though, those I think it shows that he does know her very well, but yeah. he doesn't know her completely. Yeah. And that it's that because if he really fully knew her, he would knew she'd never be okay with it. Yeah.
2: And he has it's like... Oh, go ahead. Um, I was going to say he has to make that separation now because... He, like I said, I don't think that he'll regret what he did. And in order to stay true to that, he has to yeah. be like, I don't care what you say. I don't regret what I did. Um, yep. And they're, you know, what's what's that going to mean for later? So there has to be that separation between them. There has to be that more of a a true, and, and, and in a sense, in some sense, that is a true father-daughter relationship. The, you know, resisting against them deciding for you and them saying, no, I did this for a reason. You can't, maybe you can't see it now, but I truly believe that one day you will. And I'm not saying that that's okay. And I'm not saying that, you know, you know, I'm not making excuses for it, but I do think that's how Joel is viewing himself. And I think that he does, he does love Ellie for who she is. And there's Mm -hmm. no question about that. It's just, they aren't right now after the hospital, aren't at the same level with each other about that, I think. Yeah. And that's what makes it so difficult.
0: I think it's so true. Last thing I want to ask you is, watching that episode with a religious group, the cannibals, who, as I said, cannibalism is one more thing where I'm like, in dire circumstances, I somewhat understand Yeah, it. that's but the, again, the least worst
2: thing that David did.
0: <laughs> agree. But in a show that went to such lengths and a game that went to such lengths to say everybody is a hero that if you look at things from each person's perspective, you can understand why they don't see themselves as the villain. David felt out of place to me, mm-hmm. particularly at the very end when he, when they, they make insinuations that not only is he, like, trying to, like, you know, d- defeat Ellie, mm-hmm. but that he may want to, you know, yeah. a- assault her in ways that are really not okay. Yeah. Um, to essay her. I understand the need to put that in because I think it also helps to justify her reaction to it. Yeah. And maybe that's why it's there. It felt to me a little bit, though, like they were making him a little more two-dimensional than most of the other villains we'd seen uh, or quote unquote villains. And I I may have just talked myself out of it as I realized that maybe you need it to justify the terrible things, not terrible, but the way she reacts to him. But what was kind of your take on that?
2: I think that an interesting thing about David that makes him very terrifying is that he truly believes everything he's saying. And yeah. in a sense there are, there's a lot of what he says that isn't a lie. Like they are truths that he manipulates to serve his purpose. Yep. And like the thing with Ellie having a um what what was it? Oh my God. Why can't I remember that she has a, a vengeful heart or a, yeah. what was, the, was it was a vengeful heart. I can't remember now. Um, and he, he tells her, he tells her that, and that's not actually far from the truth. Like it doesn't make it her bad, but you yeah. know, we do see at the end of the episode that she is capable of violence and, or she has a violent heart. That's what he says. Um, that she is capable of violence and she sees that and that changes the way she views herself. And, um, and then she has to grapple with the fact that what David said has some truth to it. And that's a horrible thing to have to grapple with. And when he says, um, if you don't find a way to trust me, you will be on your own. That's the thesis of the entire first part of the last of us. And so that's what makes it terrifying is that he uses truths, to manipulate the people around him. And I think that in some instances, he's actually a foil of Joel. Mm. Uh, He views himself as a father. He views himself as a protector. So does Joel. And um, the difference between them is that Joel isn't a predator, at least not in the same way that David is. He doesn't take advantage of children the way that David does. And, um, you know, he doesn't view children as his equal the way that David does, which is a predator thing, but they do have similar outlooks on who they are, uh, Mm. protectors and Ellie, being so against that with David for absolutely understandable reasons, like she should, um, is, I think, foreshadowing for how resistant she'll be to Joel trying to insert himself into her life in that way. Yeah. Uh, even if it is in a well-intentioned and not predator-like way. Uh, and so I think that is his purpose in this story. Uh, he, You can understand some of the things he says. Like, I have in my notes that... I think in the show, there were parts where I was like, you know, he's not wrong with what he says. Mm -hmm. I don't agree with him. He's absolutely disgusting, a horrible person, but some of these things he's saying aren't wrong. And that's what's so dangerous about the type of person like him is that he's capable of manipulating. He's capable of making people see things from his point of view and then completely warping it and turning it into something so gross and disgusting.
0: I think it's a really good way to put it. And that really helps, I think, to kind of put all of it and, and, and show like, yeah, kind of why some of the things that it does, like it is all necessary to the larger picture of his character. Um, so for you, is there any of the last things you wanted to bring up about the show? I mean, I, we could probably do a whole series <laughs> of episodes on, on on this show, but any of the last kind of big questions you wanted to, to, to make or points you wanted to point out?
2: Um, I think maybe just point out that I just really appreciate how much care went into the creation of this adaptation. Uh, from yeah. every single aspect of behind the scenes in front of the, in front of the screen um, or in front of the cameras, everyone clearly cared so much about this. And I feel like the best example of that is having Ashley Johnson play Anna. Uh, yeah. Ashley Johnson voices Ellie in the games. And she puts so much of herself into that character. And she's talked at length about how much Ellie means to her and how represented she feels through Ellie and so to have her give birth to show Ellie was so beautiful and so indicative of just how much this adaptation cares about its source material and that it's in the absolute best hands it could possibly be in and if like if you didn't know that Ashley Johnson plays Ellie in the game I encourage you to go back and watch that scene with that knowledge and Mm -hmm. it makes me cry every time
0: (laughs) yeah and it's and what I love is I think that's kind of the pinnacle of it but there were so many of the voice actors mm-hmm. from the original yep. who played this like Marlene is the same actress mm-hmm. and and she says some beautiful things about it in the in the the making of and even and just one more example but again this is how much care is put into it the the actor who voice acted Tommy mm-hmm. um he plays Perry yeah. the kind of military person is the second in command in Kansas City and to me there's an additional level of care there because they realized they had cast pedro pascal as uh a, as Joel and so they're establishing that that their family is that their family is latine mm-hmm. um and so the guy who played who played him Tommy in the voice actor like I mean, he he's a white person at least as far as he looks. Mm-hmm. he doesn't seem like he would fit as Joel's brother but instead they still said but we want to have a role for you Let's not give you somebody else's role. Let's create a role for mm-hmm. you. Because so much of that, that happened in Kansas City is creative. Yeah. And I just thought that was... that. It, it just It's such a small thing. Tommy's not a huge part. Perry's not a huge part. Mm-hmm. But that level of care for those two parts and that one actor was just... Star Wars, take notes, please.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I just love, I love how all the voice actors were so supportive of the show. Um, you know... Uh, the Jeffrey Pierce who plays uh, Perry and voices Tommy in the game. He says that he has had, he had long conversations with Gabriel Luna who plays as Tommy in the show. And they just, you know, they had great conversations about it and he was fully supportive of this and was like, absolutely. He was the right decision. And the same with Troy Baker. He has been Pedro Pascal's like big fan throughout all of this. And he talks a lot on the podcast about choices Pedro has made for Joel that he was like, man, I wish, like, I wish I had thought of that. I wish that I had seen it that way. And that's why he is glad someone else is playing him because he gets to see how things that he might've missed about the character. And I think that's such a beautiful, just, you know, willingness to work together as artists to tell the best story you can. And I'm so glad that that's how they approach this.
0: I'm horrible because I, I forget the name of the voice actress who plays Ahsoka, but seeing the conversations between her and um, now blanking on the other uh, R- Rock, Rosa- the, Rosario uh, Dawson. Rosario Dawson, yeah. thank you. Um, I just mango both names, but her. I, I was like, I know it's Rock, Rox- no Roxanne Dawson is Voyager. <laughs> yeah. Oh, an actress. Um, but yeah, it just, I, it's, it's because to me, it really holds a continuity of yes, the writers create these characters. But the actors, and that very much includes the voice actors, really bring them to life mm-hmm. in such important ways. And I and, you know even there was some discussion about how the the visual artists who went into the game, mm-hmm. like that they spoke a lot with the people, the set designers and stuff like that, the costumers. Yeah, because it's the same thing. It's like you know, in the same way that you're bringing a, a voice actor's world uh, to creation in live action you're doing the same thing with the sets and costumes Yeah, all so. mm-hmm. oh, was beautiful well Danielle thank you so much for being a part of this um I can't imagine anyone more who I could have wanted to have on for this Thanks. show and we'll probably talk more about the show cause <laughs> like, we didn't even talk about Bill and Frank I you know I know what <laughs> And we will have a little bit of the bonus content just in a few moments uh, that will still be on this show. But till then, uh, Danielle, you've created so much great content in other places about this. It's, a little, it's about a lot of why don't you Star Wars things. Uh, where can people find you?
2: Uh, I'm on TikTok, at written in the Star Wars Twitter, at DannyS394. And I have written an article for almost every episode of The Last of Us on Temple of Geek, and it's just under my first name, Danielle.
0: Great. And for everybody who uh, is taking... So please check out all the great things Danielle is doing. Check out all the great things Aaron is doing, and of course, we'd love it if you'd pay. We'd love it if you check out, you know, all the things that the Ethical Panda is doing. This show is an Ethical Panda creation, uh, and that we also do the Star Wars Universe podcast with great content with Danielle uh, and Aaron that'll be out soon about um, the Bad Batch. There'll be content coming out about Mandalorian. We're doing episode by episode. Also, a quick announcement that fans of superhero ethics may not know. This podcast is going to be moving from the Stranded Panda Podcast Network to the True Story FM Network. They're the folks who do Marvel Movie Minute. To be clear, I dearly love some of my best friends and supporters are all in Stranded Panda. They do incredible work. Ashley Coffin from the Stranded Panda is going to continue to be part of The Mandalorian. Uh, I'm sure I'm going to have Matt Carroll and Jeff Randall on for various things. This is not about them at all. just a new direction for our shows. In terms of you, the listener, it probably isn't going to matter at all uh you'll still get the same feeds you'll still get the same places to give us feedback uh the patreon program may be shifting to a membership program i don't know the details yet everyone who's paid things you're still going to get all the same benefits nothing's going away uh it may be that we're going to keep patreon it may be that we're going to just have the membership thing instead all that's to be figured out but i would say well i want you to sign up for patreon for the next couple weeks hold off on pause uh you can sign up as soon as we get that figured out um (laughs) But we're going to, buy, but certainly, what do you think? There's so many good questions here. We want to know what your thoughts. If nothing else, probably do a feedback episode just about this because there's so much great stuff that came up. Please let us know. You can contact us on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, all those great places. Uh, so I have myself and Danielle. Thank you so much for uh, tuning in. We have spoken. All right. Welcome back, patrons. So we're going to take at least a first couple steps into a topic that frankly could probably be its own episode. But I think... I really wanted to bring up in terms of The Last of Us, because Danielle, I know it's a topic you've had so much to say on, and from a lot of different perspectives. And, you know, it's starting from the perspective that Pedro Pascal is a phenomenal actor, is very good in both this role of The Mandalorian, is also not hard on the eyes, <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination, and I think has generated quite a good deal of thirst. And this is a po we actually did a whole episode on thirst and how... There's often a pushback against women expressing thirst and how that's really problematic. Uh, I've certainly expressed a lot of the thirst for Pedro as well, because <laughs> I think there's a whole bunch of genders who are very attracted to him and to his role as both uh, Din and Joel. But also, that's a conversation that is not simplistic and has really gotten away from us in a lot of ways, I think. And I know it's one you've had a lot of thoughts on in, in all directions. And so I want to just kind of give you the floor to, to talk about that a bit.
2: Yeah, well... First and foremost, I am not immune from Pedro's <laughs> attractiveness, um, and I think it, it goes beyond just the physical. It's you know he's he genuinely seems like a good person, like a nice person, and he's so approachable and friendly every time we see him, and I think that plays a lot into the appeal. the The problem is that it's never it's never so easy when these actors are Latino. Because there's always another level that goes with it is that a lot of times the people thirsting after them easily fall into fetishizing and there is a thin, there's a thin line between it. And we see that a lot with Latinos in Star Wars uh, and other sci-fi, especially Star Wars, because there's a term that a lot of, a lot of us um, Latina people use, which is, you know, like space Latinos, he's one of our space Latinos or a space poppy. And that term was started by us to show appreciation for the fact that we're being represented in this franchise. And it wasn't ever really meant to be something sexual. It wasn't meant to be something fetishized or thirsted after. And very quickly, that was co-opted by Uh white, non-Latine people um, to sexualize it to sexualize Pedro and, and Oscar Isaac and, you know, um, all the other Latinos in star Wars. And that's where it becomes an issue because they've taken this thing that was meant to be something that we're proud of and that's represents us and made it something sexual. And this happens to Latino men a lot in Hollywood. And I think, we're seeing the like absolute pinnacle of it with Pedro right now because he can't get through an interview half the time without someone bringing up the fan cams of him on TikTok or the thirsty tweets of him on Twitter. And that's really frustrating to see because, as you said, he's such a phenomenal actor and he has so much to say and so much to offer and to just limit these interviews to that is now like it was annoying. And now it's disgusting. (laughs) A lot of the time, like there's, there's a line and I don't think it's being respected by a lot of people. And I am frustrated to see that on some social media sites, women aren't seeing that and, you know, are just thinking that it's okay. And there are shirts that say, Pedro Pascal is my slutty daddy which is a tweet someone made him read on the red carpet. And it's just, you know, it's uncomfortable and it's it's it just feels like we can't have a Latino in Hollywood without overly sexualizing them and not allowing them to just exist and be talented actors.
0: I love what you're saying there. And there's two things especially that I would comment on. One, just in terms of the fetishization of the Latinos, I remember there was a cover, I think it was by Variety, it may have been Rolling Stone, uh, but it came out about six months ago, and it showed um, Pedro Pascal, Diego Luna, who plays Andor, <clears throat> and I'm pretty sure the third one was Jimmy Smits, who plays uh, Leia Organa's father, who was in, uh, you know, who Bail Organa, who was in the, the prequels and then had a small part in the um, the Obi-Wan Kenobi show. And it was like the sexy the sexy Latinos of Star Wars or something like that. Mm. And I remember the part of me was like, This is awesome that they're celebrating it. But then especially hearing some of your comments and looking back on it, like, A, cause like two of them are star are the stars of a Star Wars TV show. Mm-hmm. One has a fairly bit part. Um, and also Oscar Isaac is there if you're trying to get that, but <clears throat> it just felt it made me see what you mean about the fetishization of it, because I do think that, like, all three of them, are all four of them are great actors. And I do love Jimmy Smith's Bail Organa. I've loved him ever since he did um, uh, L.A. Law way back in the day. Um, but, yeah, the way that they're talked about just seems really problematic in that regard mm-hmm. in terms of wanting to group them together. And I remember, like, so much of the, like, you know... Yeah, Pedro made the I'm your daddy tweet, mm-hmm. which was a lot of fun, but I don't think justifies what's being done to him. Yeah. It's been used for that all the time. <coughs> but part of that was, I remember there was a lot of this like, wait, so who's sexier, Pedro or Diego? Yeah, You know, and like I think Diego said something about being a daddy or something like mm-hmm. that. And there was all of this like the, you know, like the two of them being pitted against each other in these really weird ways that yeah. I felt uncomfortable with, and didn't really understand. And I think your comments and comments of others really helped to kind of put in a focus of like, here's what's going on here.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's just so it's so weird because like you know I've done my fair share of you know thirst after after Pedro, but it's like it was all in good fun and never very like never disgusting like never. Very vivid things about it. And I don't want to call that disgusting, but I I, I view it like if you say that to your your friends or like in a group chat or, you know, whatever, you even think that that's not disgusting. But putting it out there and commenting it on his post, tagging him in it, hoping that he'll see it, that is disgusting. And um, it like it's gotten to the point where it's like, I don't even want to view him that way anymore. (laughs) Like, I don't want I have no interest in saying anything remotely thirsty about him anymore, because I don't one, I don't want to be lumped in with that. And two, I, I want to resist that. And I want, like, if this large section of the internet is going to just focus on that, then I want to be the part of a part of the part of it that isn't doing that, that is focusing on who he is as a person, focusing on what he's offering through his work and through his talent. And I think the one thing is like when it's gotten like extremely too far is that his sister, Javiera, uh, she's a director. She works in film and she recently was a part of uh, this documentary about Argentina and uh, he was the host on a panel at its premiere. And um, so many people, when they opened up the floor to questions, were just asking him about him and not about the film and not about the film is this very important subject to him that he wants to spread. And I think people don't realize that like, you know, when you're like for him, it's important to spread this awareness about stuff. And that is what he was trying to do with this. And so to have people ignore that because they want to ask him a question about himself instead of this very important subject or this film that his sister helped produce. And it's just It's disappointing because we aren't allowed to see, or he's not allowed to talk about his career as a career, you know, like this is a work that he does. This is a talent, an extreme talent that he has that has been ignored for a long time by a lot of people, um, because that's how it is for Latinos in Hollywood. And, you know, a lot of people are viewing this as his big break, but he's been in Hollywood for a long time. And... Uh, It's just, it's disappointing that the discussion always has to revert back to what people want him to do to them or what they fantasize about him. And I just wish, I wish that it would stop. I don't, I don't want people to stop, you know, like to police what they say on the internet, but at least have a little, a little respect and at least balance the thirst with actual, you know, thoughts about his career. Right. (laughs)
0: Especially because, like, we live in a world where, like, the fantasy that is not actually about a familiar relationship, but is about the romantic slash sexual relationship of daddy Mm -hmm. girl or daddy boy. Like, that's a thing a lot of people enjoy, and it's becoming more mainstream, Mm -hmm. and I think that's great. Mm -hmm. But the degree of people who wanted to read that, because that's the relationship they might want with Pedro, which... I don't blame you, mm-hmm. but therefore they wanted to read it onto Joel and Ellie mm. became really uncomfortable.
2: Oh, yeah. And,
0: <laughs> and and then also, you were talking before about how a lot of people are just like, yeah, Joel is my like macho man. He's, he's the gunslinger. So I totally respect everything he does. And so I can't accept that he could be wrong. Mm-hmm. I think that's the majority of it. And I want to keep that in mind because what I'm about to talk about could be viewed as all of it in a very sexist way. Mm-hmm. But I've certainly also seen a lot of posts, primarily from women, but not entirely by any means, of the "he's too sexy to be wrong." Oh, you know, yeah. I <clears throat> my my daddy my daddy Joel could never make a bad decision. Mm-hmm. I have to, you know, I support Pe- what one was, which I thought was funny, but but also like, yeah, it was like I support Pedro's rights, I support Pedro's wrongs. Mm-hmm. Joel can do no wrong, yeah, because he's too sexy. Yeah, and like, yeah, it's like it's he's a very sexy man. He clearly, I think, you know, he he clearly, I think, had fun with it for a a time, Mm -hmm. you know, with the, like, yeah, I'm your daddy tweets that I may have watched more than once. And I think a lot of people may have watched (laughs) more than once. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it. But I think you're right. It got to this point where instead of him getting to say, look, I know this is happening, so I'm going to have some fun with it. But on my terms, when it is like when he's with his sister to support her, Mm -hmm. when he's on the red carpet for something, you know.
2: Yeah, it's the fact
0: that that's what dominates it.
2: It's no longer him bringing it up. It's people bringing it up for him. And that's a very different thing. And I think that that's that's something I I can relate to on a much smaller scale because I'm nowhere near the heights of Pedro Pascal. But, um, you know, I've talked before on TikTok about how it's different when I bring up my thirst for the clones versus when someone else brings it up for me. And it's just this, this kind of like level of, of respect of just being like, yeah, you want to have fun with it. All right. I'm going to play off of what you say. Like you lead this conversation Um, because things of a sexual nature can get uncomfortable for people. And if they don't want to talk about it, then they shouldn't have to, they shouldn't be made to feel forced yeah. to. And um, I think that that's where this is all leading to with, with Pedro is that's, that's what it's become. Mm-hmm. And those tweets you mentioned, I, I hate those. And I told, and like, I don't blame people, but I'm also like, Pedro is not the most important aspect of the last of us to me. He is not mm-hmm. what got me into the story. He is not um, what I'm rooting for. I'm glad he's in it because he's a phenomenal actor. And I don't think we could have gotten a better Joel. Um, But the story is what's important to me. And I worry so much that people's thirst for him is going to overshadow the show and the story is going to overshadow certain things. And I think we're seeing a little bit of that with people being like, because I thirst for him, he can do no wrong. Therefore, I'm not going to interrogate his actions or anything else about the story, the way the story is asking you to, because you don't want to. And, um, that's where it becomes an issue where people are ignoring things about the story, uh, because they want to defend Joel at all costs. And a lot of them it's because it's Pedro Pascal. And that frustrates me to no end because the same thing Mm -hmm. happened with Narcos narcos i resisted watching narcos for a long time because i have a moral uh issue with uh cartel shows and cartel movies because for so long and still in hollywood that is the way that latino men are most easily uh, are most yeah. likely to get their big break in hollywood it's like they have to go through that pipeline of the cartel show or movie a black
0: man had to be a urban like street you know urban part of a gang yeah and for latino's a heavy part of the cartel yeah same, same dynamic
2: and so i resisted watching it for a long time but then i you know and i i'll admit i went i watched it because pedro was in it and i wanted to see him and then i got into it and i was like oh my god this is actually this show subverts all of the stereotypes of cartel shows and movies and it is actually told in such a nuanced way their act. The characters speak Spanish like they would. They're not speaking English with an accent uh, the whole time. They're speaking Spanish. And you have to watch the subtitles. You have to do all these things. And they really worked with people from these countries. And, um, you know, that there was a lot of thought that went into it. It wasn't just a black and white thing like so many of these cartel shows are. And I was like, no wonder he wanted to work in this because this is actu- actually something progressive towards different types of stories of this. This is how we can talk about cartel history without stereotyping Latin America and Latinos. And um, I was so mad when I realized that because I was like, why (laughs) didn't, why was this not talked about as much? Like, why was the focus on the two hot leads? Why was, you know, the fact that this is so important for the way we tell stories about Latina history, And it, that's just not talked about. All that's talked about is the scenes that Pitherell is having sex in and or that his character is uh, naked or partially naked in. And I'm like, yeah, that's fun to talk about. But when it starts overshadowing the story and when that story is so important, that's when it becomes an issue. And it just makes it for me to where, like, I don't even want to participate in that anymore because I just, you know... I feel like I have a fundamental uh, thing against it now.
0: Mm -hmm. No, I can totally understand that. And I think, I can totally understand that. And I think that there's, I'm really glad that you drew the the individual connection as well, because that was the other direction I wanted to take this. Because, you know, I think that's, there's a related issue there of like, you know, when I think a lot of women creators who talk about their thirst for the sh- in, in the shows that they like, and some queer creators, but not surprisingly, it mostly comes down on women, that their commentary and content gets entirely reduced to that. Mm-hmm. Or it becomes a, oh, hey, you have opened the door to a discussion of your sexuality. Yeah. And so now I feel like I get to sexualize you mm-hmm. because you've talked about who you sexualize. Yeah. And, you know... That hit me really hard because I I know I was someone who asked you about that. And I think I did like check with you beforehand mm-hmm. uh, about it. But still, like, and to me, it's a great example of how we've got to be so careful about the extremes. Yeah. Because where it was coming from in the worlds that I have been in, as I said, I, I'm part of the MCU. Part, I've been a part of the Strand of Hanna Network. I still have a lot of connections to them. On the MCU cast... Ashley Coffin, who's one of my favorite uh, podcasters out there and is my co-podcaster for Mandalorian, back, like, going pretty far back in in Marvel movies, she was openly talking about her thirst for, you know, Thor and Captain America and characters like that. She also is a makeup artist, so she had a lot to say about (laughs) bad eyebrows and bad wigs on Chris Hemsworth. But she was talking about it pretty openly and a little bit graphically. Mm -hmm. And... At that point, not that like so much has changed just in like three to four years, but especially at that point, the podcasting about Marvel World was incredibly male dominant. Yeah. And she got so much pushback and so much hate of, like, how dare you talk about them in those terms? You're objectifying them. Isn't that what you always say we shouldn't do to men? Like, And, and like, what she was doing was certainly not the same thing, but mm-hmm. also not acknowledging the huge power differentials that are there when it's, you know, men talking about women versus women talking about men, yeah. etc. And so I heard that. And so my reaction was, okay, cool. I want to. I want to give her a platform for that. And then when I heard people like you and Aaron and others talking about your thirst for the clones, my thought was, awesome, that's so great, I want to give a platform for that as well. Mm -hmm. But I think you really helped me realize, like, yeah, that's a good thing, but because the world we live in is terrible and people want to ruin things, even that can get taken in these bad directions Mm -hmm. of like, yeah, it's like, oh, okay, either A, Dismiss your thoughts because you're thirsting, or B, use that as a way to be really uncomfortable towards you because mm-hmm. you're expressing thirst.
2: Yeah, and it's and that's the thing is that I I struggled a lot with this discourse around Pedro and thirst because I do feel like women are unfairly judged for when we talk about sexual things and when we talk about you know our thirst for characters, and so I never want to come across as like that's that's wrong. You should never do that, but there is a line and. There is a, you know, there's just, just, you know, have respect, have when, when, and when it comes to Latinos, particularly, and, and I, you know, I don't want to speak for the black community because I'm not black, but for people of color in in general, who are so often fetishized for things Mm -hmm. that normally aren't, you know, seen as attractive by the white Commune by white population or whatever, um, but then are fetishized and sexualized when they want right. them to be. Um, when those people from those communities are telling you that it's getting uncomfortable, when they're telling you that the things that you're saying or the terms that you're using aren't meant for you and aren't meant to be like this, listen. <laughs> Don't push right. back on it. Don't say, "Oh well." Um, or don't make them seem like they're being sexist or like they're being unfairly judgmental towards women sexualizing men, listen to what we have to say. Listen to our concerns about it because it's not coming from a, oh, women are sexualizing Pedro. He must, you know, this must be bad. It's coming from a, you are bordering the line of fetishization and this is contributing to a problem that Latinos face in Hollywood all the time. And- Like, you know, the Latina community has been talking about this with regards to Pedro forever, (laughs) for a long time, and it was only just in the past few months that, you know, finally some white people started talking about it, and it's like, oh my gosh, you're right that this is very uncomfortable. This is very uncomfortable. And it's like, where were you last year when we were talking about this? Where were yeah. you when we, you know, it was fun. The daddy thing was fun for a week and then people kept using it and it was like, okay, this is getting uncomfortable. What are you doing? Yeah. And it's just, yeah, just, just listen when people from these communities are telling you that you might be going a bit too far. It's not because we're judging you. It's not because we want to stop you from being a sexual being. We want these men to be respected in their careers, and they deserve that just as much as the white men in the same industry.
0: I think so much yeah i think you're right that it's the fetishization it's not really understanding like i saw one great uh series of tiktoks and this was like two years ago she was talking about uh, a reggaeton star i believe mm-hmm. <clears throat> but she was basically saying like white people equate daddy and poppy yeah as the same word and the same meaning and, and her whole thing was like they have similar roles but they are very different mm-hmm. and saying like Oh, if you call him Poppy, I can call him Daddy. Is the same? It's like, not. No, no, that's that's not the same. I think the other thing there is the power dynamic. You know, a, a, a number of the the women creators who talk about thirst, one thing they talked about is and as why they would be like this is different. The way I talk, you know, the way a woman would talk about Chris Hemsworth mm-hmm. versus the way a guy would talk about Scarlett Johansson is incredibly different. Yeah. In part because of just the power dynamics and of like the, you know, uh, you know how that works. But that once it is a white woman talking about a man of color that that shifts the power dynamics as well. Mm -hmm. And so that's a whole other attitude. And so, you know, sort of talking about like, oh, the things that I would do to this person, like, yeah, it's a very different dynamic when it's a white woman talking about Chris Hemsworth versus talking about Diego Luna or Pedro Pascal or whoever it might be.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I've had lots of conversations about this with my fellow Latinas, specifically other Latina women, because there's a, I think, a fierce protectiveness we feel over... Latino men in Hollywood because, Mm -hmm. because of that, because we, we're so proud to be represented and to have them recognized for their hard work. And when that stops being the main thing they're being recognized for, it's, it's offensive to us. And we kind of view it as being offensive to them because this is things that they have to face in everyday society already. And when they're in Hollywood, when their image is amplified like this, it's even worse. And it's just like, you don't want to see that. Like, we just want to be proud of them. And one thing that I've talked about with them as well is that, you know, you'll see a bunch of white, non-Latine uh, women when Pedro speaks Spanish or when Diego speaks Spanish and they're like swooning over it like, oh my gosh, this is so nice. And I feel like for a lot of Latina or a lot of just Latina people in general, when we hear that, it's very emotional because for a yeah. lot of us, Spanish has been kept from us and Spanish has been something that we're not allowed to speak or that our parents weren't allowed to speak. And so when we hear it on the stage at star Wars celebration or uh, in an interview, it's a a sense of very real pride and very real. Mm. This person is making it so that, you know, my parents don't have to be afraid to speak Spanish so that it's something that, you know, is more acceptable is something people don't fight against anymore. And then to see even that sexualized is just, it's continually disappointing. Like we can't have anything that, is just a source of pride for us. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, there was... This is a very different comparison, and I only saw one instance of it happily, and I don't think it's really happening. But when the character of Echo came out in Hawkeye, for me, as someone with a mm-hmm. prosthetic leg, mm-hmm. and the actress who plays her has a prosthetic leg. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, I wouldn't have even thought of it as being fiercely protective of her. I was just so happy... Especially because there are things that she does, both in and out of combat, that only really make sense if you know what that's Mm. like. And I felt so seen by. And so when I saw just one tweet happily, but wow, did I come down. (laughs) I I had like everyone I knew, like, you know, reporting this. Um, Someone posted about like, wow, Pimentel, like, she's so hot and she could take her leg off in bed and make more space for that. It would be so great. I was just like no no do not do not take this first you know amputee moment in superhero stuff and make it a sexual thing Mm -hmm. like we're not so i have all the sympathy in the world for what that's like yeah well this is such an important topic and one that i hope we have a continued conversation about and just but i do want to kind of wrap this up is there any other last thing you wanted to say about this
2: um just that you know if if you like The Last of Us and you came to it because of Pedro. Uh, I hope that you don't just like it because of him. I hope that you engage with Uh the story fully and that you find something in the story itself that's separate from Pedro and separate from Joel that you enjoy because that's part of what I imagine that's part of what an actor wants their fans to do, not just view them, view their characters as separate from the story, but as a part of this larger story and that the story is just as important, if not more than those characters. Mm -hmm. So I would really encourage you to to just, you know, enjoy the story for what it is and not just for what Pedro has to offer Mm -hmm. to it.
0: Definitely. Very true. Well, Danielle, thank you so much. So glad you could be part of this conversation. Thank you to our patrons. Your support really helps keep us going in so many ways, financially and emotionally, and I really love it. And just to all of us, as always, we want to hear what your thoughts, and I would just close by saying, we have spoken. Right.